Fantastic. If you've got a Bible, why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 14. Uh, We're going to look at verse 22 onwards. Very famous story. Matthew 14, verse, uh, chapter 22, verse 23, uh, 22. Let me say that again. Matthew 14, <laughs> verse 22. We've been thinking about confessing religion, embracing a person. And in the session that we just had, we thought, really just want us to be thinking today about what is this person, who is this person that we're embracing. So much that we could say about him, we thought about the fact that he is inclusive, radically inclusive, that everyone is chosen. And in this uh, session, we're going to think about the fact that he's dangerous, that he's dangerous. This story uh, continues from the famous story of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus has just fed 5,000. So when verse 22 begins, immediately after this, the this is the feeding of the 5,000. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. After sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land. A strong wind had risen and they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came towards them walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, It's a ghost! But Jesus spoke to them at once, don't be afraid, he said, take courage, I am here. Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. And so Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water towards Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord! He shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? When they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. Then the disciples worshipped him. You really are the Son of God, they exclaimed. Amen. And so it was a few years ago, it was the Easter holidays. In the Summerfield household, my boys were much younger and they came up to me and they said, Dad, we're bored. I said, boys, how can you be bored? Seriously. I mean, you know, you've got a PlayStation, you've got a computer, you've got a drum kit, you've got board games, you've got Lego. (laughs) Hours and hours of endless fun. How can you be bored? And they said, well, it's quite simple, Dad. We need a PlayStation 2. said, boys, you do not need a PlayStation 2. It's just like a PlayStation with the number 2. That's all it is. My son Daniel, he looked at me and said, oh, ignorance. (laughs) It's so much more than that, Dad. It's better graphics. It's better sound. It's better games. We need a PlayStation 2. I said, boys, you don't need a PlayStation 2. You need water. You need oxygen. You will not die if you do not get a PlayStation 2. Daniel looked at me very seriously. He said, we will die. (laughs) We will die of boredom, we will die of shame. We need a PlayStation 2, Dad. I said, well, you're not going to have one. 
until about six months later, I saw this really good game for a PlayStation 2. <laughs> so we bought a PlayStation 2 eventually. But it was only about a year or so later that the boys came up to me, maybe it was the summer holidays, and they said, Dad, we're bored. I said, boys, how can you be bored? You've got a PlayStation 2, you've got a computer, you've got a drum kit, you've got board games, you've got Lego. So you're getting better now. So it's quite simple, Dad, it's because we need a PlayStation free. Anyway, eventually they saved up for one and then in the end they got bored with that and now my son sold it on eBay and how he's got an Xbox. He's converted to the dark side. <laughs> Some of you Xbox lovers are saying, no, it's amazing. If you were a bunch of young people, we'd do a little competition, PlayStation, Xbox, but we won't do that now. I know you're all Nintendo Wii fans, I can tell just by the look of you. <laughs> you prefer the energy of that. I'll tell you that story for two reasons. One, just to reaffirm something I said yesterday, we are sold this lie that says if we have stuff, then we'll be satisfied. And it just doesn't hold out. We, we get the stuff that we think, if we've got this, and, and there's nothing wrong with PlayStation 2, there's nothing wrong with having a nice house, a nice car, uh, nothing wrong with any of those things in of themselves, but if we think that is the goal of life, we will be disappointed because once we've got it, we get bored. But I also tell you that story for another reason, that in my work with young people, I've been involved in youth ministry for 23 years. One of the things that breaks my heart, challenges me, is when I speak to non-Christian young people, and uh, whether in the street or in my own urban saints group or in holidays, and even perhaps some adults as well, and I say to them, tell me what you think about the Christian faith, about Jesus, about the church. They mostly, with one voice, say the same thing. They say that it's boring. That's what they say. It's boring. I want to ask you this morning, how has that happened? How is it that the most radical, dangerous, unpredictable, wild, edgy Jesus has ended up with such a safe church? That the people in our world will look at it and say, it's boring and irrelevant. And how can we recapture what it really means to be a follower of Jesus such that if people reject him, they reject him because it's too dangerous, too risky. I love this story that we're going to just unpack this morning because for me it really explains what it means in many ways, in many dimensions, to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus has healed, um, uh, has fed the 5,000. He insists, the scriptures say, that his disciples get into a boat and go across the Sea of Galilee. They are obedient. They do as Jesus has said. He goes on a mountainside to pray. But then things start to get worse. It's a very serious storm. The words in the Greek language that, that um, Matthew uses to describe it are very powerful. When it speaks about the waves and what the waves are doing, the, the, the word could be translated tortured. There's a sense that these waves are tearing the boat apart. And when it speaks about the wind... The sense that you picture that you get in the original language is it's like the disciples are constantly trying to turn the sail to catch the wind so that it will pull them out of the storm. But every time they turn the sail, the wind changes direction. 
So it's like everything they try to do to make things better, it ends up getting worse. And their lives are at risk. Have you been in that situation? You find yourself in a storm and you're maybe despairing a little bit of life. Will this ever end? Is this going to play out okay? Am I going to be all right? Will this situation change? And you try to do things to pull yourself out, but it just seems to go from bad to worse. Anyone ever had those experiences? But here's the kicker in this story. Why do they find themselves in this position? Why do they find themselves in the middle of a storm? Why do they find themselves in this situation why they might lose their lives? And the answer is because they did what Jesus said. They did what Jesus said and everything got worse, not better. They did what Jesus said and it looked like they might lose their lives. I wonder, you know, sometimes I think in the past I have stood in pulpits and I have said, the safest place to be is the center of the will of God. And I want to suggest to you that is wrong. I mean, it's safe from a point of view that your life is secure in his hand and that you'll be with him for now and all eternity. But actually, if you go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation about the men and women who were serious about following God, they would not use the language of safety. It's dangerous. It's risky. In Hebrews chapter 11, we get the roll call of faith. Abraham and David and Samson, all these men and women who did great things for God, they're named. And then if you turn to the end of Hebrews 11, it talks about the others who were sawn in two, who were tortured and butchered. And the scripture says of them, the Hebrew writer says of them, and the world was not worthy of them. Dirk Willems was an Anabaptist follower of Jesus in the 1500s. And he spoke out against the church in Holland at that time. It was corrupt. It was about power and money, not about Jesus, not about this radical inclusivism and loving people and caring for people. It was all about power and money. And so he spoke out against it. And so the church arrested him. They put him in prison, sentenced to him to be burned at the stake. One particular evening when the guards weren't being as diligent as they should be, he saw an opportunity to escape. I mean, the scripture says, you know, love your enemies, but you still are allowed to run out of prison if you get the opportunity, I think. (laughs) And so he does, he escapes, he runs out of this prison across the snowy fields of Holland. It was the middle of winter, hotly pursued by a prison guard. He runs across this frozen lake, and as he gets to the other side, he hears the sound of breaking ice, turns around, and and he notices that this prison guard has fallen into the lake, broken through the ice. The guy's drowning. And in this moment, he has a decision, a dilemma. Will he be a follower of Jesus in this moment? Because this Jesus said that you must love your enemies and do good to them. Or will he run to safety? Dr. Willems crawls across the ice, jumps into the water, the freezing water, pulls this sky out, and for a moment they're cold, breathless, soaking wet on the side of the lake. And then the guard says, I'm so sorry. I have to take you back. I have to take you back. And though that night that prison guard pleaded to his authority figures, do not kill this man, Dirk Willems was burnt at the stake the following day. Why? Because he was obedient to Jesus. He did what Jesus said, 
and it cost him everything. It's dangerous being a follower of Jesus. Jesus doesn't invite his disciples into a comfortable, trouble-free life. He invites us into a radical, risk-embracing, danger-accepting, world-changing adventure. The Jesus that wants to be embraced by us today is wild. He's wild. You can't put him in a box. He's not safe. The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, when Jesus calls a man, he calls him to come and die. To be willing to give up everything, to embrace the call and cause of the King of Kings. Jesus said himself, Mark chapter 8, 34 to 36, if any of you want to be my followers, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you'll save it. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul? Doesn't sound to me like Jesus is saying, let's just play it safe. Let's just be comfortable. Point number one, Jesus calls us into an adventurous, risky, dangerous life. But secondly, that adventure challenges us to grow. Because a few chapters earlier in Matthew chapter 8, there's another storm. You know the story well. Jesus is in the boat this time in this particular storm uh, with the disciples And uh, a huge storm is raging, Jesus is asleep, he is modelling shalom, he's modelling well-being, that when life is really rubbish, you can still have peace. And they wake him up and they think they're all going to die, and he just stands up at the bow of the boat and speaks to the storm and says, chill. I think that's really what it says in the Greek anyway. (laughs) This is different. Jesus is nowhere to be seen. And if we believe that Jesus is God, which we do, then we believe that Jesus knew what was about to happen. And so what's going on here, this this is an opportunity for them to grow. He wants to stretch their faith. He doesn't want them to rely on yesterday's faith experience, yesterday's answer to prayer. Jesus wants to stretch them. He wants them to grow, to develop that their faith muscles build, that their dependence on him builds, that, that the sense that even when you can't see him, you know he's for you. You know he's with you. In fact, we're told in Mark's account of this story that Jesus sees exactly what's going on as he prays from the hillside. He doesn't miss anything. He sees it all going on. And there's something wonderful about this, I think, this whole thing of discipleship is about us growing and God stretching us, because what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is saying to the disciples through this story is, I believe in you. I believe in you. I believe you'll come through. I believe in you. You see, this morning, I could say to you guys, do you believe in Jesus? And you'd all say, yeah, we believe in Jesus. But let me ask you, do you believe that he believes in you? He believes in you. He believes in this bunch of reprobates, tax collectors and fishermen who should know how to steer a big boat out of a storm. He believes in them And Jesus believes in us. We've all had experiences, haven't we, when we think we're going to break. 
And yet these experiences are not supposed to be the breaking of us, they, they become the making of us. You know, my wife and I, we went through a really tough time about eight years ago. It looked like we were going to get a divorce. Pretty much my fault. Just too involved in ministry, neglecting my family. Danger of all of us doing that. And so we went through counseling for six months, every week, two or three years to recover our marriage. We're very strong now, though we have to keep working at it. But it was the making of me. I don't, say, I don't mean I've arrived, but God had to break me to make me. And so much, you know, as I looked at myself and the way I was behaving and acting, you know, on, on one level I'd say to you, I, I wish I didn't have to go through that. I, I understand St. John of the Cross speaks about the dark night of the soul. I hope some of you never have it. It's that moment that you get when you feel like Elijah and you say to God, just take me, I want to die. I know what that feels like. I had a weekend like that in the midst of this. I just thought, Lord, I, Lord, I cannot cope. So he broke me, but he made me. And so the Lord allows us to go through these things because or, or even in the midst of that, I can still hear the whisper of God saying, Matt, I believe in you, you're going to come through. I think this is one of the things that's going on here. And so into the midst of this, this great uh, moment, eventually Jesus rocks up. He appears. And they're not expecting him. I mean, there probably are 10, 12 foot high waves happening here. The last thing they're expecting is someone to walk on the water. It's not a common practice. I don't know if you've ever tried walking on the water. I have tried doing it. Go on, some of you admit it. I know that even this afternoon now, some of you are going to have a crack in the pool. <laughs> I know, I know. I've done it. I have sat at the end of the deep end, put my foot out, and ended up looking like a complete plonker. But, you know, I won't ask you to pull up your hands. Um, but I know we've, we've tried it. It's hard. You might say. It's impossible. But Jesus isn't walking on flat water. He's walking on huge waves out to the disciples. And some of us here, again, just need to hear this. Pause. Whatever store you feel you're in at the moment, Jesus is coming. Whatever storm, he sees you, but he's coming. Because however big it is, however hard it seems, there is nothing that's going to stop your Savior getting to you. But they don't expect to see Jesus. And so what do they think? They think it's a ghost. And it's understandable they think it's a ghost uh, because there were kind of traditions at that time that in the middle of the night, about three o'clock in the morning when this was happening, that spectres and phantasms would patrol the seas. And so this is their Scooby-Doo moment. Anybody remember Scooby-Doo? <laughs> I used to love Scooby-Doo. I still do love Scooby-Doo. You can't, you know... Uh, you know, this is like, it's a ghost. And of course, you know, if you're a big fan of Scooby-Doo, and I know some of you are thinking, I'm a Christian, I would never watch Scooby-Doo, but uh, just chill out, it's just a bit of fun. It's a cartoon. Um, and of course, it never was a ghost, or a haunted spaceman, or a crooked pie, or anything like that. It always was the janitor who would have got away with it if it wasn't for those pesky kids. Of course, in this story, it's not a ghost. It's Jesus. It's God. And 
Jesus wants us to know that he is God. The words that he uses are very specific. Take courage, don't be afraid, I am here. Come with me a few thousand years earlier. Moses is by a burning bush. And God is speaking to him and saying, you've got to go back to Egypt. You've got to rescue your people. Tell them God has sent you. Moses spent 40 years in Egyptian culture. He knows there are lots of gods. And so he says, well, well, which God, what name of the God shall I say? Because they need a name. And God gives a very strange answer. He says, tell him that the God I am sent you. The God always. The yesterday, today, forever God. The God who is ever-present the God I am. And so we land in this boat moment in the middle of the storm. And what does Jesus say? He says, it's there in the Greek, I am. God is with you. God has come to you. God is here. And so we're reminded in our adventure, which is risky and dangerous and about growth, that Jesus comes to us. God is always with us. We need to hear those encouraging words. Maybe some of us this morning just need to hear that, that God is saying, take courage. Don't be afraid. I am here. God is with you. But this adventure also takes us outside of our comfort zone. Peter speaks out to Jesus and says, Jesus, if it's really you, tell me to come to you. I love Peter, don't you? I I really do like him. You can imagine all the other 11 disciples thinking, here he goes again. (laughs) Peter is the Homer Simpson of the disciples, isn't he? He really is. He speaks stuff, and then about an hour later, he was just like, maybe that wasn't such a good idea after all. But Jesus, Peter, is kind of understanding something about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be following the rabbi. Remember we talked about it? The rabbi walks on water. So if the rabbi walks on water, then I can walk on water. So I'm going to do the stuff that the rabbi does. If it's really you, bid me to come. And you can imagine the other disciples thinking, are you serious, Peter? You're telling Jesus to tell you to come and walk on 6,000 fathoms of stormy water. Have you lost your mind? Notice what Peter doesn't do. Very interesting. He doesn't ask for a promise. Peter is saying to Jesus... Jesus, I recognize that you are where it's most dangerous. Tell me to come to you. I want to be where it's most dangerous as well. And, but he doesn't then say, but promise I'll be okay. Promise me I won't drown. Promise me this will all turn out okay. He doesn't ask for a promise. He just says, Jesus, if you tell me to come, I'm coming. Your word is enough. Outside of the comfort zone. Jesus is where it's most risky. Because he's getting, Peter's getting that sense that being a follower of Jesus is dangerous, it's risky, and and that's where we want to be. Where Jesus is. He's outside the fence. And so then in that moment, this incredible thing happens. Peter walks on water. This step of faith. In 2008, I had a sabbatical Uh, from Urban Saints, and I spent uh, a few months um, chilling out and meeting various people and reading, and I went to a youth camp over in America, just outside of New York. And they had one of these things called a ropes course, a high ropes course. Uh, We're all familiar with high ropes courses, yeah? Has anyone ever been on a high ropes course? They're like, they're developed by demon-possessed people, as far as I can tell. (laughs) And uh, as I've got older, my fear of heights has increased, 
I never used to be afraid of heights, but now I seem to be afraid of heights. Completely irrational. And, uh, and so the people who had invited me to come and see this youth camp, they uh, said, great news, Matt, on day three we've booked you on a high ropes course. I just wanted to kill them in Jesus' name. <laughs> but like, what do you say? You know, thank you, but no thank you. Um, I've booked, you know, uh, an illness on that day, so I can't, you know. <laughs> so anyway, it was after lunch, which again was a bit of a worry. I was just worried I might re-see my lunch again. But um, So... Um, so anyway, I begin on this high ropes course, and it starts off, literally, it's like two feet off the ground, and already I'm just praying for the return of the Lord, you know, just already. But it ends with this demonically called thing called the bungee drop. It's the only way down. So basically, you go from platform to platform, you're about 50 or 60 feet up, and then you sit on this tiny platform that I promise you is not much bigger than this uh, music stand. There's, a, there's an instructor there, he straps this big hook to you. Um, unstraps you from the main kind of pulley thing that we're going with and literally just pulls, pushes you off. This was made worse for me by the fact that a seven-year-old girl was going on just before me. <laughs> and so when she was pushed off, she just went, wee! And I'm thinking, I'm going to wee, actually. I just think, <laughs> I, you know, just the mere thought of that. And those of you who are offended by me talking about my bodily functions, I apologize profusely. It doesn't get worse. So it came down, I sat on the end of this thing, and nothing in my body wanted to go over the edge. Every muscle tightened, even my belly button went like that. And then I pushed off, and a sound came out of my body that I just couldn't believe. In fact, to be honest, my children, who were 3,000 miles away, said they heard me scream, and I believe it. But what I discovered was that the rope was strong enough, that it held that I was okay, and for a moment, once I stopped free-falling, I was flying, and it was awesome. But you've got to step out to feel how strong the rope is. You've got to get out of the boat to see what God can do when impossible things start to become possible, when ordinary things become extraordinary, where miraculous stuff becomes natural. You've got to step out to see that. You don't get that in the boat. And so the story continues. We all know it well. He's doing so well, and then he takes his eyes off Jesus, which we all do, don't we? Doing so well. And then he takes his eyes off Jesus, and then he begins to sink. Because, you know, to embrace the adventure, if you're really going to go for it, and Jesus wants you to go for it, it means that you're risking failure. If, if you really, really want to go for it, it means that you're willing to risk failing, getting it wrong. And that's why I love this story, because there's a reality about this story that in one moment, Peter is going for it, doing great stuff, impossible, miraculous, eyes on Jesus, and in the next moment, he's wondering whether he's even going to live. That's my life. I'm like that. I wish I wasn't like that. I get really frustrated with myself sometimes when, you know, even in the last week, we, we in Urban Saints, we've, for many, many years, 
We've been through kind of great financial hardship as a national charity. And this last six months, by God's grace, in the middle of a massive economic challenging area, God has just been blessing us. It's just, it makes no sense other than the kindness and the grace of God. And you know, I get a check for £10,000 coming through from someone who's never given to us before. I'm like on a high, wow, it's amazing, I'm pumped. God, you're fantastic. And then the next minute I get an email from someone complaining about something that's going wrong. And it's like it robs me immediately of the joy that I just had in God. And I say, God, if only I could be on a bit of more of an emotional even keel. Is there anyone like me here? I, I do want to, I'm not staying here. I want to be better at this. But to embrace the adventure is to risk failure, to, to have a go. And in this moment of failure, Peter has a choice to make. Again, I think, you know, it's always important, I think, when we read the scripture to look at what happens, but also to think about what could have happened. Because Peter's got three choices here. Choice number one, I'm a strong swimmer, I'll swim for it. Some of us take that choice. When we fail, when we screw up, we think, I'll I'll try and put this right. Choice number two, disciples, throw me a life raft, I'll depend on you. And some of us do that, and of course we do need people to help us. But Peter, in his stupidity and failure, is wise about one thing. When you screw up, you immediately go to the one who can save you. And so Matthew tells us that Peter says, Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus reaches down and saves him. Because Jesus always responds to people who say, I screwed up. He always does. And he responds immediately. His heart is turned towards those kind of people. It's what we talked about in the session we just had. We know he says those words to Peter. Oh, you're so little faith. This didn't have to play out this way. Hopefully challenging him, inspiring him to go again, to go for it again. And again, what happened then, I wonder? Well, the scripture doesn't say it, but I guess this is the only thing that could have happened unless Jesus gave Peter a fireman's lift that Peter and Jesus walked back on the water together until they got back into the boat. Theodore Roosevelt said this, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again who spends himself for a worthy cause, who at the best knows, in the end, the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if he fails, at least fails whilst daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who knew neither victory nor defeat. Twelve men all had an opportunity to walk on the water with Jesus. Only one took the risk. Only one said, I want to be where you are, Jesus. Only one would have a great story to tell the grandchildren. And so there's this moment, isn't there, where 12 men and Jesus are sitting in the boat, the water's calm, and they're worshipping him. But I imagine there's a moment of silence as the water quietly laps the boat 
and the wind has died down and the stars are shining brightly in the sky and there's silence. It's a holy moment. And Jesus has a story. And Peter has a story. And for Peter, it's the story when he risked everything to follow the dangerous Jesus and the impossible became possible. Radical, gutsy, rugged, go-for-it faith. But 11 men sat quietly because they would never have that story to tell. I want stories, don't you? Stories of when God has used me to take risks and do some crazy stuff for him. God wants you to have stories. The writer to Revelation, John, says that we kind of overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word, the power of our testimony. Stories build faith. We need stories. We need that sense of, God, I'm going for it. And one of the reasons, the tragedies, that when people look at the church today and they think it's boring, it's irrelevant, is because we're not living the radical, dangerous, uncomfortable, risk-embracing life that Jesus called us to live. Lukewarm Christianity, as well as Jesus saying in Revelation, gets spat out of the mouth. Lukewarm Christianity, for Christians, is boring. It's boring. It's not what following Jesus is really all about. Following Jesus is about waking up in the morning and saying, Lord, whatever you're up to today, count me in. Whatever you're up to, I give you the permission to interrupt me. I might have my schedule, I might have my plans, I might have my meetings, but whatever you're up to, count me in, speak to me, arrest me, interrupt me in the middle of the day. Draw me into the great adventure. Show me where I need to walk on water to take risks. Because that's where the action is. That's, it's scary, but it's amazing. It's life in all its fullness. That's where it is. Jesus has not come to forgive us and heal us to live safe, comfortable lives. He's called us to be radical people. Radical obedience embracing risk and the fear of failure, going where he's going. Let me close with this story. A friend of mine, a guy called Doug. I've known Doug for about, well, nearly 30 years. Doug is about, well, he must be about 70 years old now, maybe a bit older. He's been following Jesus for a long time. And Doug understands this sense of embracing the radical adventure, being interruptible. He's driving, just a few years ago, he's driving down the street one day in his car, and, um, and he feels like the Holy Spirit speaks to him and says, I want you to pull up your car just here by the side of the road, this, by this block of flats. And so he pulls up, he gets out of the car, and he feels like God says to him, you need to walk up two flights of stairs, and when you do, there's a door opposite the stairs. You need to knock on that door. And what would you have done? You know, if it was me just being honest, you just think, oh, that's just my conscience or too much cheese last night or um, just start making excuses and, you know, what if you knock on the door and there's no one there? What if you knock on the door and there is someone there? You know, you know what are you going to say? But, you know, Doug, he's decided. 
that he'd rather take a risk and look foolish than not take a risk and miss out on a water-walking experience with Jesus. And wow, he was not going to be disappointed. And so he walks up the stairs. Sure enough, there's a door at the, on the second floor. He knocks on the door. After a few seconds, the door opens. There's a man in his mid-30s staring at Doug, obviously been crying. Doug says to him, this will seem weird. I, I don't know if you know anything about God or church, all that kind of stuff, but I really feel that God has told me to knock on your door. He loves you. The man says, you better come in. They go into this man's flat. They sit at the table, and on the table, there's a shotgun. They sit, and they stare at the shotgun, and the man says to Doug, I've never been into this God stuff, never went to church, not into any of it stuff. My life's over, though. Lost my job, lost my family, going to lose this place. I've got nothing to live for. I was about to blow my brains out. And I don't know why... I even said it, but as I held this gun underneath my chin and was about to pull the trigger, I simply said, God, if you are really there and you care about me, would you send someone to my door right now? And before I had the time to grip the trigger, the door knocked, and here you are. I didn't read this in a book. This happened to Doug, and let me tell you, no one was more surprised than Doug. But it seems the stakes are pretty high. And you might listen to a story like that, like I would, and think, oh, I would have blown it. I, I, I wouldn't have, you know, done that. And you know, this is what I've learned. I'm really finishing now, okay? This is what I've learned, is that faith builds, and God speaks to us in small risks. And as we take small risks with him, and are obedient in those things, then he gives us greater risks. And so for me, one of my big risks, which for you wouldn't be a great risk, is sitting at the end of a, of a row of chairs in Denver Airport when I was on that same experience in the States three years ago. And a lady comes and sits at the other end, and she's weeping, and I've got my laptop sitting on my lap, and I'm doing work, Christian work, God work. And I feel like the Holy Spirit starts saying to me, you need to put your laptop away, you need to go and comfort that woman. And I was like, Lord, I don't know her, it's 8 o'clock in the morning, and I'm writing Jesus stuff. <laughs> this is important. And I feel like the Holy Spirit's, mm, mm, you need to turn your laptop off. Because I'm a task-oriented person. I, I mean, I like people, love people, but I'm a task guy. Turned my laptop off. Went and sat next to this woman. Said, are you okay? And she said, yeah, my 15-year-old son has just got on a plane and he's going away for two weeks and I'm not really going to hear from him. It's the first time he's ever been away. And I'm just worried. And so we just chatted. Didn't preach the gospel at her. Didn't feel like that's what Jesus wanted me to do. He just wanted her to know she's seen. Put my hand round her and we just chatted. An announcement came on the intercom. She thought it was for her. She got up. She squeezed my shoulder and said, thank you for being so kind. I'm not saying this to impress you because I was a bit torn about whether I could be bothered to do it. She came back 10 minutes later. She says, I'm going now. Squeeze my shoulder. And then she disappeared. I don't mean literally disappeared. She went off. <laughs> she was an angel in this case. How to kill a story in 30 seconds. But you know, the day before, I'd been at the World Trade Center Visitor Center. 
and to see the sadness of that unfolding story of what happened on September 11th, 2001, and it broke my heart, and I walked out of that place, it's another story, but I walked out of that place the day before, and I said to God, God, how can we survive in this crazy world when people would do such evil, and I felt so down, and the Holy Spirit reminded me of some words that Paul wrote, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And as I watched this woman walk away and leave with this small act of kindness, where I was the hands of Jesus in that moment, just saying to this woman, there's someone who's seen you. The Holy Spirit again said to me, Matt, don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. And so I think because I was willing to take a risk on that occasion, there'll be bigger risks for me in future. And God will build faith. And maybe one day, he will trust me to save someone's life like Doug did. And so don't let Doug's story put you off, but recognize we're growing, we're learning what it means to be radical followers of Jesus. And let us understand more than anything else that this Jesus is dangerous. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for the power of your word and, and its challenge to us. As Mark Twain said, it's not the parts of your word that I don't understand that bothers me, it's the parts that I do understand. And Lord, we come to you maybe in a sense of fear and trepidation. We, we really want to say, sign me up, I'm up for it, Lord. The radical life, whatever you want me to do, interrupt me, break into my schedule, whatever it is, Lord, speak to me and I'll do it. But we also confess we're a bit scared. And we pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would be bold. And that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would be compassionate. Lord, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.